Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 72. The Trial of the Century. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Thank you to my Patreon House of Lords who help keep this podcast going, and who have been joined by the Countess of Blackwell, Serena Blackwell. Like all of her patrons, she can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free, and like her fellow peers of her rank and higher, she can listen to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last week, we saw how the new model army asserted its power over London, after forcibly purging the House of Commons of its enemies. The nascent Treaty of Newport, the final attempt at a compromise peace between Charles I and his parliamentary enemies, was denounced and rejected. The rump parliament and the leading officers of the new model army were determined to put the king on trial for his crimes against the people of England and Wales. We left off with the House of Commons, for the first time in its history, passing a law on its own authority, ordering the trial of Charles I. One of the ironies of this period is that many of the moderate parliamentarians who opposed the horrific idea of regicide had laid the ideological framework for it in previous years. For starters, the act of fighting a rebellion and civil war against the king raised some awkward questions about the nature of monarchy, the right of resistance, and the position of the king. When the fighting was over, what would that position look like? Throughout the fighting, parliamentary rhetoric, in Parliament and in pamphlets, associated Charles with tyranny, emphasised the contractual nature of government, and insisted that sovereignty was, at the very least, shared between the people and the king. 
Throughout all these years of civil war, people had raised the possibility that kings could be killed, either in battle or otherwise. And this was generally a very small minority, and those who heard or read these ideas usually reacted with shock and horror at the very idea. But as the war dragged on, attitudes hardened, and the idea continued to gain adherence. I do need to emphasise, though, that this was still a very minority opinion. These arguments, these rhetorical flourishes, these callbacks to the ancient world, opened a door which moderates would later wish they had kept firmly closed, and many notable opponents of regicide paved the way for it with their earlier radicalism. For example, William Prynne wrote a pamphlet in 1643 which supported the right of a people to resist the tyranny of a monarchy, but also contained arguments for the punishment and deposition of a tyrannical monarch, and justified the act of tyrannicide. He was later appalled when others took the spirit of his arguments to, in their mind, the logical conclusion, and actually carried it out. The historian David Wotton cleverly noted that for all that moderate parliamentarians were horrified at the use of the headsman's axe in January 1649, many of them helped sharpen it. But opposition to regicide was not limited to those MPs purged from Parliament by Colonel Pride. Even on the Army Council, there were arguments in favour of sparing Charles Stuart's life. Some of these arguments were based on the Solemn League and Covenant, which expressly bound those who swore to it to preserve the king's life and position. Others noted that killing the king would be deeply unpopular within England, throughout the other two kingdoms, and further afield. It was incredibly likely that taking the king's head would spark another surge of royalist riots and rebellions. The taboo of killing a king also lay heavily on the thoughts of army officers. He was an anointed king, it just wasn't done. And then, of course, there was the inconvenient element of kingship, that the instant one monarch died, their heir took their place. That heir, Prince Charles, was at large in mainland Europe, and he was already the centrepiece of a growing royalist-in-exile community. Prince Charles had already meddled in English affairs during the Second Civil War, granting commissions to royalists and giving them legitimacy, and he'd recently appointed Prince Rupert of the Rhine as an admiral and sent him raiding parliamentarian shipping. If Charles died, that turbulent prince would instantly be promoted to king in exile. The royalist cause would gain a martyr, and the young king would become a very attractive candidate for alliances and support, as much from the rivals of the Stuart kingdoms as from their friends. On the 9th of January, 1649, the Commons voted to remove the name of the Sovereign from all legal proceedings, and a new design for the Great Seal of England was approved, which, coincidentally, removed any mention of the King, and instead showed the symbol of the House of Commons, inscribed with the phrase, In the first year of freedom, by God's blessing restored, 1648. Jonathan Healy notes that, whatever the hopes of moderates, the rump was preparing for a kingless government. The High Court of Justice, which would put the King on trial, was meant to be made up of 135 commissioners. It was also meant to have representatives from across the social orders, and both expectations crashed and burned almost immediately. The three Lord Chief Justices who were meant to oversee the court refused to take part in this illegal and blasphemous farce, as did the half-dozen peers appointed to the body. 
29 officers of the army were appointed, and this included Cromwell and Ireton, as well as Sir Thomas Fairfax. But even among the officers, when it came to actually putting the king on trial, many pulled back. Colonel Algernon Sidney, the governor of Dover Castle, was appointed to the court, but he refused. His refusal famously stated that the king could be tried by no court, and especially not this judicial travesty. More embarrassingly, Sir Thomas Fairfax, now Lord Fairfax, bowed out of the proceedings after attending just a single session. I've seen it argued that he hoped to be a moderate voice on the panel, but quickly found that many of his fellow judges were out for blood, and he refused to condone it with his presence. Still, a determined core of officers and MPs kept proceedings going. Cromwell and Ireton were among these officers, of course, and they were joined by civilians like the radical MP, Henry Martin, and the preacher, Hugh Peters. These men worked day and night between the formation of the court and the morning of the 20th of January, when their last pre-trial meeting was interrupted by the news that the king had arrived. Cromwell went to the window and watched as the king disembarked from a barge on the Thames and climbed the steps into his newest gilded cage, and this was when he reportedly realised that, for all their planning, they still hadn't worked out what they would say to the king if he questioned their authority. On what grounds did they claim they could judge him? Henry Martin then piped up. They would simply inform the king that they acted, quote, in the name of the commons in Parliament assembled and all the good people of England. It was shaky legal ground, but so was everything the army and their allies had done over the last two months, and it would have to do because they were out of time. Last week, I mentioned how a new Agreement of the People was drafted by a committee including army officers and civilian levellers. Then it was presented to the Council of the Army for further revision, and this had angered the leading leveller, John Lilburn, but the officers weren't too fussed and made the changes they wanted. On the 20th of January 1649, the new draft, known as the Officers' Agreement to distinguish it from the other versions, was presented to the Rump House of Commons as a basis for a new constitution for England. The MPs gratefully took it, ordered it printed, and then placed it to one side, never to be touched on again, because the trial of the century was about to begin. At 2pm on the 20th of January 1649, 68 commissioners, dressed in black robes, formally entered Westminster Hall and took their places. This was the centre of English justice, the home of the central courts of England's legal system. As the judges marched in, the sword of state was carried before them. The presiding judge, the Cheshire attorney, John Bradshaw, took his place in the centre of the desk, and he looked out at the court from over the parliamentary mace, which was nestled on a velvet cushion. Above the commissioners was a coat of arms, not the royal arms, but the cross of St George, the symbol of England and of its people. Directly in front of Bradshaw sat an empty chair, awaiting the defendant. Lining the room were 120 soldiers armed with pikes and halberds. Filling the stands and galleries of the hall were hundreds of spectators and reporters. Several were licensed journalists drawn from across the political spectrum. One staunch royalist, one official parliamentary reporter, and several others who could be described as sympathetic to Parliament but not officially affiliated. This was to be a display of popular sovereignty and public justice. But was it also a show trial? As the clerk began the roll call, 
The first name on the list was, who else, but the Commander-in-Chief of the new model army, Lord General Sir Thomas Fairfax. In a rather awkward moment, the only answer the clerk received was a shout from the gallery. He has more wit than to be here, shouted Lady Fairfax, his wife, to scattered laughter. The clerk carried on, noting the attendance of Oliver Cromwell, Henry Ireton, and Henry Martin. By the time he'd finished the list and confirmed the attendance of just over half the appointed commissioners, the man of the hour appeared. Charles Stuart, King of England, Ireland, and Scotland, entered the hall, flanked by twelve halberdiers of the new model army. He was dressed in his position as a Knight of the Garter, his respect for the conservative, aristocratic traditions of England on full display. He walked with his silver-tipped cane, and when he came to a stop at the end of the hall, he refused to doff his cap to the judges, and instead stared at them, sternly, at the men who presumed to judge him. John Bradshaw opened the proceedings. Charles Stuart, King of England. The Commons of England have constituted this High Court of Justice before which you are now brought, and you are to hear your charge after which the court will proceed. The lead prosecutor, John Cook, stood to the side of the King's chair and began to read the charge. He only got a few words in before Charles tried to interrupt him, tapping him on the shoulder with his cane and telling him to hold. Cook ignored him and started again, at which point Charles tapped him again, hard enough that he broke the silver tip of the cane on his back. When it fell to the floor, Charles waited for someone, maybe Cook, to pick it up for him. He was a king. But no one did. Cook simply continued reading, while Charles got out of his chair and stooped to pick it up. It was a humiliating gesture, which everyone, including Charles, fully understood as such. Cook carried on without interruption. It took ten minutes for Cook to get through the entire thing. The charge accused him of betraying the trust of his subjects by attempting to govern without according to law or parliament, in an attempt to quote, erect and uphold in himself an unlimited and tyrannical power to rule according to his will and to overthrow the rights and liberties of the people, end quote. He had then, quote, traitorously and maliciously levied war against the present parliament and the people, end quote. He then compounded his crimes by continuing his plotting with the Marquis of Ormond, the Irish Confederates, and his son Prince Charles, with the intention of bringing a third war to England. He was nothing less than, quote, a tyrant, traitor, and murderer, and a public and implacable enemy to the Commonwealth of England, end quote. Charles sat and listened while the charge was read out, and when Bradshaw asked the king how he would plead, guilty or not guilty, the king laughed in his face. Instead of filling his intended role, he veered off script. Quote, I would know by what power I have been called hither. It was exactly the question which had worried Cromwell that morning, and Bradshaw echoed the advice of Henry Martin. This court was proceeding, quote, in the name of the people of England, of which you are elected king, end quote. Now Charles went on the offensive against this blatant constitutional revisionism, quote, England was never an elective kingdom, but a hereditary kingdom for near these thousand years. Charles went on to attack their legitimacy, quote, I do not come here as submitting to the court, I will stand as much for the privilege of the House of Commons, rightly understood, as any man here whatsoever, 
I see no House of Lords here that may constitute a Parliament. Let me see a legal authority warranted by the word of God, the Scriptures, or warranted by the constitutions of the kingdom, and I will answer. End quote. Of course, the court couldn't provide any of that, and the king knew it. With Henry Martin's defence clearly failing to convince Charles, and many of the murmuring spectators as well, Bradshaw called a recess. Charles was removed and put back in custody for the day. The court reconvened on the 22nd, and then the 23rd of January, and still progress could not be made. Every time Bradshaw or Cook attempted to get the king to plead, guilty or not guilty, they tried seven times. He refused them, and each time attacked the court's legitimacy with pinpoint attacks. One time he pointed out that the House of Lords was a judicial court, but the House of Lords wasn't putting him on trial. His judges were mostly army officers or members of the House of Commons. Quote, The Commons of England was never a court of judicature. I would know how they came to be so. End quote. Through these arguments, Charles was insisting that he was actually the one upholding the ancient laws of England, in the face of this illegitimate, heretical, and illegal court. Quote, If it were only my particular case... I would have satisfied myself with the protestation I made the last time I was here, against the legality of the court, and that a king cannot be tried by any superior jurisdiction on earth. But it is not my case alone. It is the freedom and the liberty of the people of England, and do you pretend what you will, I stand more for their liberties. For if power without law may make laws, may alter the fundamental laws of the kingdom, I do not know what subject he is in England that can be sure of his life, or anything he calls his own. After three formal and public sessions, the king had refused four times to accept the authority of the court and plead guilty or not guilty. On the 24th and 25th of January, the witnesses against the king were examined, and the evidence was laid before the judges. The witnesses were a mixed bunch, and not the strongest for the prosecution. The court heard several witness statements, including someone who saw Charles encourage the sacking of Leicester. It also included the man who painted the pole on which the king mounted his standard in August 1642, usually seen as the start of the First Civil War. Others recalled times they saw the king wearing armour, encouraging his troops before a battle, or otherwise being witnessed in the act of levying war. Charles was reportedly contemptuous of all of this, pulling faces and scoffing at much of it. He might have taken it a bit more seriously if Cromwell had managed to turn Hamilton back in December, but oh well. Then it came to the evidence, and Michael Braddock notes that presenting the evidence to the judges was a bit silly, because the judges were the ones who had collected the evidence. Cook was telling the judges what they already knew, and Cook knew they knew, because they'd told him to tell them. But trials have evidence, and judges hear evidence, and they were desperate to look like legitimate judges in a legitimate trial. So, they heard the evidence. The judges found themselves convinced by their own evidence, and established a seven-man committee to draft the sentence of death. On the 27th of January, Charles was brought before the court again, and once again asked to plead guilty or not guilty. He refused, for the fifth time. But if his resistance was not an act of self-martyrdom and actually intended as a negotiating tactic, he seems to have realised that he'd pushed too far. After refusing to plead, he requested an opportunity 
to address both Houses of Parliament, Lords and Commons, and though he still refused to recognise the court's authority, he made sure his request didn't deny it either. What he would say to the assembled Parliament, we'll never know. Some, like Gentles, suggest that the King might have accepted defeat and offered his abdication. I'm not so sure. It's entirely believable that this was one last throw of the dice to get all the Lords and the Commons, including its purged members, into one room to seize the political initiative. It would be the best support for the Royalist cause Charles could ask for. What better example of social anarchy could the King show? These radicals had him, and by extension the monarchy and the entire social hierarchy of England, over a barrel. If they didn't agree to terms now, who knew what they'd do? But we'll never know, because Bradshaw refused his request. Then came the sixth and seventh opportunities for the King to plead, and he refused both times. By this point, the patience of the judges had worn out. Despite the King's stubbornness, they had heard witness testimony, they had read the evidence, and they had a sentence. Bradshaw gave his closing remarks, quote, There is a contract and a bargain made between the King and his people, and your oath is taken, and certainly, sir, the bond is reciprocal, end quote. He criticised the King's refusal to acknowledge the court, quote, You disavow us as a court, and truth is, all along, from the first time you were pleased to disavow and disown us, the court needed not to have heard you one word, end quote. Then the clerk read out the sentence. It attacked Charles as a monarch who had been entrusted with limited powers, but who had then illegally and tyrannically surpassed them. When his subjects had resisted, he had levied war against his own people. After his defeat, he had been willing to instigate and support foreign invasion to restore himself to power. It included his refusal to engage with the trial, and therefore acknowledge the sovereignty of the people and his responsibilities to them. Therefore, quote, Upon serious and mature deliberation, this court is in judgment and conscience satisfied that he, the said Charles Stuart, is guilty of levying war against the said Parliament and the people. After repeating the charges, it concluded, quote, For all which treasons and crimes this court doth adjudge that he, the said Charles Stuart, as a tyrant, traitor, murderer, and public enemy to the good people of this nation, shall be put to death by the severing of his head from his body. End quote. Charles's reaction was to try and speak, to reject this judgment, and finally engage with the proceedings. He requested to speak, but Bradshaw refused him once again. It was too late. The sentence had been read out, he was already dead in law. Bradshaw ordered the condemned to be removed, to the passionate chanting of the watching soldiers who were crying out, execution, justice, execution. Others in the galleries sobbed and wailed as Charles was led out of the chamber. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. 
The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. The historical consensus of the trial of Charles I is say it with me now, debated amongst historians. Traditionally, I think it's safe to say that it's been seen as more of a show trial, a kangaroo court, where the verdict of guilt and the sentence of death was a foregone conclusion, and that everyone knew it. This included Charles, whose freedom of action was now limited to whatever moral victory he could win against his enemies. They could take his life, but they would never take his self-respect. He refused to acknowledge the court to deny them any legitimacy from it. The short-lived involvement of General Fairfax supports the idea that the judges knew fine well how the trial was going to end. He attended the first meeting of the commissioners, and never attended again. Could it be that he had, up to this point, believed that they were planning to use the trial and the threat of death as a negotiating tactic, and that it was only at this meeting that he realised how far his colleagues were prepared to go? His horrified reaction to this discovery might have scared him off, which would explain why he never attended. It would also explain why his wife did. Her attendance, where she very publicly and loudly condemned the proceedings, was seen by many, then and now, as a proxy of her husband's own feelings, in addition to her own. The trial was not just about the fate of Charles Stuart. As we saw, it doubled as a means of establishing where legitimate political power truly lay, from above or from below from a divinely appointed sovereign or from the consent of the people. The Commons had already taken steps along this road after the House of Lords attempted to block the trial, by simply ignoring them and citing popular sovereignty as justification enough. The trial was staged in Westminster Hall, home of the main courts of English justice. The replacement of the Royal Coat of Arms, which normally hung above English courts to represent the place of the Crown in justice, with the Cross of St George, the symbol of England. The fact that the trial took place in public sessions, not locked back rooms where no one could see. The rump and the army allowed the public viewing and reporting of the trial. To quote Baker, everything was, quote, deliberately engineered to emphasise that it was undertaken in the name of the people of England. The traditional attitude towards the trial, that it was a show trial, was dramatically questioned by Sean Kelsey, who, like much of this period, views these events as more of an extended or extraordinary negotiation. In this view, the army and the rump still hoped to keep the king alive, and their rhetoric that they were prepared to have him executed was essentially a negotiation tactic. But when Charles refused to play along, to plead guilty or not guilty, or to otherwise engage with them, the judges were left with no other option but to convict and condemn him. If Charles had pled and acknowledged the authority of the court and therefore the authority of the people, then they could work with him. 
This perspective gives one reason for the repeated attempts to get the king to plead, seven times over several days. Kelsey argues that the charges were deliberately weak and vague, in order to give the king the wiggle room he needed to avoid a guilty verdict. This view sees the charge as a resurrection of the old evil counsellor defence. Charles had been led astray, and the worst acts of the wars of the Three Kingdoms had either nothing to do with him, or that he had little knowledge of it. After accepting the authority of the court and the political ramifications of that acceptance, and receiving a not guilty verdict, or at least giving the judges the option of punishment other than execution, the king could be given his crown back, though after presumably severe limitations bordering on impotence were placed upon it. Michael Braddock echoes this argument, saying that the charges were easy to beat, and many amounted to little more than pointing out that he had been present at some of the battles. Much of it was lifted verbatim from the army remonstrance, but by insisting that Charles was the sole author of the crimes of the civil wars, made it difficult to prove it. Braddock agrees that the main motive for the trial and the vague charges was to bait the king to plead, and thus implicitly recognise the court, their legitimacy, and the constitutional developments they represented. Philip Baker notes that both arguments, that the judges hoped to find a way to spare him, and that the king was always doomed, have their weaknesses. The charge against the king is damning. It accuses him of tyranny, attempting to destroy the ancient constitution of England, and running roughshod over the ancient liberties of freeborn Englishmen. So it wasn't a light touch by any means. But on the flip side, the charge didn't explicitly state a charge of treason, and it isn't a laundry list of all the failings of Charles's entire reign, when it could have been. The commissioners had debated what to include in the charge, and many of them wanted to bury the king in 24 years' worth of sin to leave him no room to escape death. Nevertheless, Baker seems to fall on the side of Kelsey. He sees the long period between Pride's Purge, the 6th of December, and the beginning of the trial, the 20th of January, as evidence of a reluctance by the grandees and the rump to commit. The repeated attempts to get the king to plead, the full two days spent giving evidence which the judges already knew, and the delays between the drafting of the death sentence on the 25th, the sentencing on the 27th, and the actual execution on the 30th, looks to Baker like evidence that there was a, quote, deliberate policy to threaten him, eventually on pain of death, to at least plead before his judges, end quote. Other historians maintain the traditional view that the court was always prepared to kill the king. Clive Holmes views the charge not as a weak attack for the king to dance around, but instead an airtight case, which left no space at all for any verdict other than guilty. Parliament had expanded the definition of treason when they set up the trial. The preamble of the act stated that, quote, By the fundamental laws of this kingdom, it is treason in the King of England, for the time being, to levy war against the Parliament and Kingdom of England. The charge, and the witnesses called, gave plenty of examples of the king levying war. He was seen in armour, wielding a sword, distributing battle standards, giving morale-boosting speeches before the battles. This was not a man who had been led astray by counsellors. This was a man who had willfully and deliberately levied war against his subjects, and under the terms of the Parliamentary Act which set up the trial, that constituted treason. For Holmes, the repeated attempts to get Charles to plead was not because the judges wanted an out, but because they wanted the trial to be a display of justice, 
and that required the trial to play out in front of the reporters. This was a show trial, and it was to be a publicised denunciation of the arch-counter-revolutionary. In this view, Charles had already accepted that he was going to die, and he chose not to play their game. He would not give his enemies the opportunity, the pleasure, of tearing down his reign and his reputation. Holmes praises what he calls a command performance of great courage and efficacy from the king. For my part, I think the judges always expected and planned for the king to be found guilty and sentenced to death. But if the king had engaged with the court, expressed guilt or remorse, and acknowledged the constitutional revolution which propped up the proceedings, I think it's entirely possible that he might have kept his head, and possibly even his crown. But that is a very big if. It would have required Charles to be a very different man, and if he'd been a different man, he wouldn't be in this situation. It would have required Charles to acknowledge a higher authority than himself, a king, other than God, and for that authority to be the people. And he was never going to do that, even as an insincere ploy to keep his throne. He'd shown in his actions, in peace, on the battlefield, and in the negotiations since his first defeat, that he was absolutely committed to his view of a divinely ordained monarchy. To surrender his birthright would be an affront against God. Compared to that, his death was nothing, especially if he believed he was destined for heaven as a martyr. Next week, we will say goodbye to Charles I and bring this second season of Pax Britannica to an end. We'll consider the reign of Charles and make our own judgments, so if you have any thoughts about him, please do send them to me, either on Patreon, Twitter, or by email at media at paxbritannica.info. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bracewell, David Braswell, the Marquess of Beaumont and Cressford, Philip Allen, and the Earl of Errol, Alistair Teal. You can join their ranks and receive ad-free episodes by going to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave Network, check out airwavemedia.com. And thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.